Welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where we've read about the many uses of Westing paper products so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin. Joining us to discuss this 1979 Newbery Medal winner is J.W. Friedman from the I Don't Even Own a Television podcast. Hello, Jay. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, and if you are one of the many people with excellent taste who are fans of both podcasts, you might be wondering, where's Collision? And uh, we are actually here today to solve his murder. <laughs> well, when Collision's not on the screen, we want everybody to be wondering, where's Collision? Yes. No, that's that's a little dark. He's not dead at, at the time of this recording. <laughs> <laughs> and I have an alibi, and I'm recording a podcast right now, and, <laughs> and I won't say anything else without a lawyer. Or perhaps we've we've boldly decided to split up these these co-hosts, and perhaps you'll hear from him on this very show in two weeks. Who's to say? You have to follow all the clues, and you'll find out. Mysterious. <laughs> I I just wanted to jump in on that before, because I'm sure intrepid listeners would wonder otherwise. Yeah, don't worry. We haven't broken up. Yeah. <laughs> Worst bestsellers is out here trying to Yoko Ono, the I don't even own a television podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're continuing our flashback summer series for this year. And as we mentioned in previous episodes, we have moved on slightly from the previous years when we were committed to doing sort of, you know, your babysitter's clubs. Well, we are doing your goosebumps, but... You know, you know, we've branched out. And so we're reading some things that uh, maybe aren't as formulaic as what we used to read for Flashback Summer. Things that are by almost any metric extremely good, such as the Westing game. Yes, we've been approaching uh, friends of the podcast and asking them if they would be interested in coming to talk to us about uh, one of their foundational childhood books and this was a real home run because not only you know do we get a chance to chat with jay which we always love but also uh the western game was also a deep favorite of both mine and renata's i believe oh, yeah. i know so this was just delightful all around great pick five stars <laughs> i'm glad i could help provide you with an opportunity to revisit this because i had a great time reading it and it's awesome to hear you did too and we had both just reread it maybe last year for our uh, book club that we're in, and it was great then. It was just as great to read it now. Uh, before we gush about it too much, I guess I do want to give a small note that there is some like mild ableist language in this, which is mostly just because of like changing in the book. I don't think we're gonna like say the words, but like. When this was written in 1979, there were some words that were socially acceptable to say that we don't say anymore. And I don't think Ellen was using them meanly. They're just there. And then I have, there's maybe some, uh, we can get into it, I guess, actually, because this book, I think it has so many different points of view. And there are some characters who have like unpleasant thoughts about other characters, but it's kind of mostly called out within the narrative. Like overall, I still think this book, like, really holds up but i just wanted to address that before anyone's like oh my god like they said that this book is 100 percent perfect and there's nothing wrong with it like <laughs> there's maybe a few things but mostly it's great and i guess i should say also some like some light racism but that i do think is mostly called out by the narrative pretty well that's one of the things that really surprised me about revisiting this book is um 
you know, pretty much anytime somebody says something that, you know, borders on insensitive, the the narrator or another character immediately puts them in their place. And uh, I was surprised by that considering when this was written and I found it frankly delightful. Yeah, like Ellen Raskin was a, a white lady. This was written before the word microaggression, I think, was even invented, but certainly before it was popularized. But but Ellen knew what they were, and she was not going to let these characters get away with with unaddressed microaggressions for the most part. It was really fun. Yeah. Jay, why don't you tell us a little bit about like your why this book resonated with you so much as a child? Like what why this was your pick, I guess. Okay, so I have always been attracted to mystery novels. I still am, uh, and just mystery media in general. And I came across this, I, you know, I was a pretty voracious library kid. I used to check lots of stuff out from the library, kind of the <laughs> the the natural inclination of, yeah. of the poor youth. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember checking this out because I liked the drawing on the cover, which is very 70s. And um I just I fell into it to the point that, you know, I I was reading this. I remember dragging it around to several restaurants, reading it in the car, even though I got car sick. Uh, I just I couldn't put it down. And uh, I think this is one of the first times that I really read a book uh, with a I don't know, like an actual mystery and a shocking reveal and all that. And I was just hooked instantly. And to this day, it's something that I really kind of use as the the measuring stick, I guess, for a lot of mysteries. And, and we'll probably get into this later, but like it can't be understated that in addition to being a fun book for children, this is probably one of the tightest and best plotted mystery novels I've ever read. So I love it. You know, I yeah, it was I read it many times throughout my youth. I've revisited it several times as an adult, and I just I, it never gets old to me. And every time I take away something new. Yeah, I definitely even this time was noticing like new little clues that I hadn't picked up the, you know, even the most recent adult reread I had. Yeah, it's there's there's a lot of very kind of deep, deeply nested clues and foreshadowing and stuff that, yeah, every time I, I read this, I come across something new and. I still, and this probably says more about me as a mystery nerd than the actual book itself, but I still get goosebumps at the end when the big reveal happens because everything was so perfectly put together up in that point that it gave me several of those like, oh, I should have noticed this before moments. And I think as a mystery fan, that's like the best thing you can feel when you're reading a book. So. Yeah, I I also was a huge mystery fan as a kid and it's what you know, drew me to this in the first place. And I was genuinely shocked to learn uh, when listening to the editor's note that was at the end of my audiobook that according to the editor, she this was just she was like making this up as she went along. This like and and it is just so intricately crafted like all of the clues the way that everything fits together the different red herrings that are there in the text like all of it is so well done in a way that I so rarely see replicated in other mystery books that that is that is shocking to me and I have trouble believing it yeah I I'm not a big mystery fan as you may know if you have listened to this podcast before but I did really like this book we read it when I was in fifth grade as like a class book and it was such a fun, cool lesson because we did, you know, like a big murder board kind of thing. And like the classroom was just full of 
everyone had to like make their like posters of what their suspects were and ev- like adding evidence to this big like basically like a serial killer like string board like not literally that we didn't have the strings but like that kind of concept and it was just like so fun and that was this was maybe like I always liked school just because I had the sort of like the specific like brain patterns that like worked well for school and so I I enjoyed going and like getting my gold star sticker and like you know and I liked reading but this was one of the first books that we read for school that I actually like really liked as a book itself and I was kind of like oh or we're like a like oh we can do this in school like that's this is like actually fun instead of just sort of like validating some other unpacked neuroses that I have about school <laughs> like it, I was just like oh my god I can't I like I can't believe we're allowed to do this in school like are like are we gonna get in trouble for reading the western game <laughs> we didn't uh, I have to say that I am incredibly jealous of your fifth grade experience because I wish that I was allowed to make an evidence dungeon in my my school. We never got to do anything like that. Yeah, it was it was a really cool teacher. It was a cool lesson. that that teacher also had us read Dealing with Dragons. So that teacher had some like excellent taste. I almost want to say like if you have made it to this point in your life and you have not read this book, I really think you should pause the podcast and like go and read it and come back later because I really I want to talk about the ending but I also simultaneously I don't want to spoil this for you like this is one of the few books that we read where I'm like no you should read this and not let our podcast ruin it for you just like please please consider my plea absolutely fair to say yeah yeah it's I wouldn't want to ruin this for anyone either this is I don't know. Like I said, it's it's just a really good story. It's a really good mystery. And um, yeah, I would hate to be the engine for someone's disappointment uh, when it comes to the Westing game, because uh, it's a delightful experience that you should have unsullied. And, you know, and it's sure if you're a grown up, you could read this pretty quickly. It's just it's such a good treat for you, even, you know, if you're like me and you don't normally like mysteries, it's still so funny and so good. And if you if you like mysteries, well, it's a mystery. It's it's for you. <laughs> okay, are you gone? This is this is your last warning. If you haven't read this, I want to talk about the ending. Okay. I think the 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 reason one of the reasons why I like this so much is because as you may know if you listen to the podcast, I'm a I'm a sensitive reader. And I am troubled by all the murder and murdering murder mysteries. And this look, this book is so good because there wasn't actually a murder in it. (laughs) (laughs) Subverting the paradigm. Incredible choice. Iconic. (laughs) (laughs) Although there there is some like really dark shit in here that when i went back and like read it this time and really thought about doing it in fifth grade i was like i really just don't feel like we address the oh god content warning for like light past message mentions of suicide which we did not i feel like we just did not talk about that in fifth grade i don't remember it coming up at all Yeah, this 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 book is pretty dark uh, for a kid's book, even though there isn't a murder. It also has like a surprisingly sophisticated sense of humor. And I think that's one of the things that I really liked about it then and that I really like about it now is it doesn't condescend at all. And 
I, I think most most good children's books don't. But um, this one has jokes that I, you know, it's not like, oh, this is for the adults and not for the kid, um, because I love them as a kid. But even reading this as an adult, I laughed out loud at probably the same stuff I was laughing at back then. Yeah, it's definitely it is written with a level of sophistication that I definitely deeply appreciated as a kid. Like this felt like a book that even though it is it is very clearly a children's book like reading it as a kid like I definitely felt like this is like basically like what grown-ups read you know this is yeah this is basically yeah, totally. like a grown-up book <laughs> there's there's a part in here that really stood out to me uh, and I even I wrote a note about it that said this is it's almost like a kid's interpretation of the way adults speak and I found it <laughs> really endearing it it's it's the description of uh, the first time you meet Grace Wexler, it says she could have been an interior decorator, a good one too, if it wasn't for the pressing demands of so on and so forth. <laughs> and that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> okay, so I don't even know how to handle this episode aside from just like gushing because I, I we've already chased people off. Like I really do feel like we this is one we shouldn't read so you don't have to because i think you do have to this is your homework and hopefully you did it so i don't know that we need to do like a full plot summary i think i think we can just agree that if you're listening now and you haven't read your homework then you are getting an f in podcast and like maybe we can just sort of like (laughs) put put that on your murder board You can rate and review us for extra credit to get your grade to a D so you can still go to the soccer game. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, so I don't know. I just don't feel like there's that we necessarily need to do the normal like plot summary that we do and maybe just sort of like dive into like gushing about it further. I don't know. What do you guys think? That's fine with me. Yeah, I think we can do like a vague overview you know, I, I think that we don't need to get into the intricacies of who all of who did of, all of, of the, who's on first. Yes. Yeah, so who's on oh. first. Oh, no. Um, you <laughs> know, the worst but, part. But, just, <laughs> <laughs> but just to say, like, like the, the general premise of this book, which is that uh, there are these uh, six families or six, six people or families that get a mysterious letter in the mail out of nowhere um telling them that there are new apartments opening up in this brand new very fancy luxury apartment building and that their the apartments are going very quickly but they if they call this number they can get a showing and all six of them all six of the groups end up all, all six apartments worth of people all six apartments worth of people end up um taking taking this mysterious letter up on its author uh, up on its offer so we end up with um the wexlers moving into one apartment and the wexlers are jake who is a doctor uh he's a podiatrist and he has an office he rents an office on the first floor of the apartment building his wife grace who uh, very, very deeply in her soul wants to be a society woman <laughs> and is kind of an absent mother to her younger daughter turtle she's she's a stay-at-home mom who doesn't mom yes turtle is her younger daughter who has a long braid 
and a temper and tends to kick people in the shins when they pull her braid and is also <laughs> a uh, aspiring businesswoman who's very interested in the stock market. And most of Grace's <laughs> attentions go towards her older daughter, Angela, who is incredibly beautiful, but incredibly unhappy as she pours all of her energy into making everyone else around her happy. Mm-hmm. Including her fiancé, Dr. D. Denton Deer, who is a, an intern to be a plastic surgeon. And incredibly unlikable. He is uh, an absolute cad. Maybe the only character in this book, I think, without a redeeming quality. Yeah. The, one of the biggest disappointments is to realize that he still does marry Angela, just not on the uh, original date. Uh, also moving into this apartment building... Uh, is J.J. Ford, who is a judge. Uh, She's a black woman. She is real cool and has connections well i see and here's the thing where i'm like how much do you reveal like yeah. there's this is so all of these characters are so intricately created that it's hard to even give a vague description without like having to dig deep into the mythos of the book exactly. in the best yeah. way uh, she's she's a single lady she's a boss babe she's a judge for the appellate division of the state supreme court she's great Yeah, there's also Flora Bombach, who is a seamstress, and she is also, she is an older woman uh, who was previously married, but is now living alone uh, in an apartment in this building. There is the Who family, Doug, who is a teenager, who is a track star, his father, uh, James, right? James Shin. Yeah. Yeah, And also it's it's H-O-O, Who. Yes. Um, his father owns a Chinese restaurant that is on the, the top floor of this building. And his stepmother's son, who is a much younger new wife to his father after his uh, Doug's mother died. And she's come to the U.S. Um, she's only been in the U.S. for like two years from Hong Kong, and she doesn't speak very much English. Yes. And she absolutely hates it. <laughs> I yeah, really she s- hates it. Yes. There's the Theodorakis family who have a coffee shop on the bottom floor. And the most important members of that family are Theo, who is the older high school age son of the family who wants to be a writer. And the younger son, Chris, who has MS, maybe? It's never specifically said. Uh, He's ill and uses a wheelchair And his speech is affected. It is a disease that only just recently sort of overcame him. And he has trouble speaking. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people uh, treat him like he's an idiot or a a baby when really like his mind is still very sharp. And he loves loves bird watching. Mm -hmm. The apartment also has a doorman who is Sandy McSuthers. Um, and then there's Otis Amber, who's a delivery boy who makes frequent deliveries to the apartment. Uh, the other person who lives in the apartment is, oh, they just call her Crow. Her name is Bertha Erica Crow, who is a, a cleaning lady. And she lives in like the, the maid apartment. And then there's also Seidel Pulaski. Mm, yes. <laughs> who is a very attention starved 
woman who is a secretary and has taken uh, some vacation time from her secretarial job and really just wants like friends very badly. Yes. And she at the start of the book is using a crutch and being very brave about having to use a crutch for this rare wasting disease that she has that the, the narrative tone immediately lets you know that this is fake and she doesn't really need it. Well, this is one of the funnier parts actually when like Dr. Denton Deer is observing her and he's shocked and can't understand what disease she has because sometimes she limps on her left leg and sometimes on her right leg. <laughs> and it seems like really inconsistent and he can't, he can't crack this medical mystery of her faking it. <laughs> she also, like, when she gets very excited, she'll forget to use the crutch entirely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, these people, we we meet them. They move into Sunset Towers. We sort of um, establish that nearby is the old Westing estate, which is this big mansion on the lake. And it was owned by Samuel Westing, who is the owner of the Westing Paper Products Company. And he's like, you know, a a rich, kooky man who hasn't been seen in quite some time. And there's kind of like spooky, like, ooh, spooky haunted house. You know, old man Westing hasn't been seen in years kind of vibes. Yes. And on Halloween, uh, there is smoke coming from the chimney in the Westing house for the first time since everyone moved into these apartments two months ago. And after hearing a spooky story from uh, the doorman, Sandy, and the delivery man, Otis Amber, uh, Turtle decides to take a bet to go into the house on Halloween night. And for every minute that she is inside, uh, the others will pay her $2. And her goal is to get enough money to get a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, (laughs) which is just such a great detail. Turtle is amazing. Like, I really, I didn't remember that whole aspect of her character. I, in my mind, she was just kind of like the generic troublemaking kid. And I forgot about her weird obsession with big finance. And it's really entertaining to read. (laughs) Turtle does sneak in, but uh, over the course of the night, she thinks she hears whispering coming from the master bedroom. And when uh, she sneaks inside to see what the noise is, she quickly sees what she thinks is a dead body in the master bed uh, and runs out. And the next morning, she doesn't tell anyone what she saw, including the people who were there to time her her um, trip into the house for the bet. Uh, but the next morning, she gets the paper and uh, Sam Westing's obituary is on the front page. All of the six households get a letter saying that they are invited over to the Westing house because they are potential heirs to the Westing fortune and they need to be present when Sam Westing's will is read at the Westing house. And just to remind everyone who they are, and because I think this is like so funny and so um, illustrative in order to like sign for receipt of this letter, everyone had to say their name and position And I'm just going to read the list of names and positions. So um, we have Madam Sun Lin Hu, cook. Jake Wexler, standing or sitting when not lying down. (laughs) Turtle Wexler, witch. Flora Bombach, dressmaker. Christos Theodorakis, birdwatcher. D. Denton Deer, 
Intern, St. Joseph's Hospital, Department of Plastic Surgery. Alexander McSuthers, Doorman. J.J. Ford, Judge, Appellate Division of the State Supreme Court. Grace Windsor Wexler, heiress. James <laughs> Shin Hu, restaurateur. Bertha Erica Crow, Good Salvation Soup Kitchen. Otis Amber, deliverer. Theo Theodorakis, brother. Doug Hu, first in all state high school mile run. Sadell Pulaski, secretary to the president. Angela Wexler, none. And there's a, a funny moment also where in the book we see that she has put position none, N O N E, as in she has no position. But her dumbass fiance is like, what does she mean she's a nun, N U N? Anyway. <laughs> and he gets all like sort of offended by it. Uh, I, I thought it was great. I also really like later on in the book, there's another section where they they have names and positions listed but they've all changed dramatically from the first time i don't know it's a nice touch it's really good like jj ford we see in her point of view like when she hears the other one she feels pretentious for putting her full title and then she's like why should i feel pretentious i worked hard for that but then the the next listing she just put judge without the whole state supreme court thing (laughs) yeah yeah, it's it's very good. Uh, it's there. It's such a good book. I know we just keep saying it's such a good book over and over again, but it's because <laughs> it is. <laughs> it absolutely is. I just like I was so excited all morning because I'm like I get to talk about the Westinghouse. <laughs> so on <laughs> so, um, the order that I, I read those in, eh, it doesn't it doesn't matter because you won't be able to follow this without looking at this the sheet that I'm looking at. They. The terms of the will are hilarious and ridiculous, and it's all of the 16 are divided into pairs, and I read them in pair order. So, like, Madam Sunlin and Jake are paired, and Turtle and Flora are paired, and so they each get a, an assigned um, partner for this, and then they each get an envelope with, like, four or five clues, which are just single words written on pieces of paper towel, and then you know the object of the game is to win and so they don't really have a lot to go on they have like a a couple of cryptic words and the object is to win and they have a partner and almost everyone is initially dissatisfied with the partner they were assigned oh and and they get ten thousand dollars for agreeing to play the game ten thousand dollars as a unit so each person gets five thousand yes and they have to sign the check together so no one can uh you know uh what is it? No one can double cross their partner if they want the money. Well, and also like realizing now, like part of the reason for that was like specifically to keep JJ Ford in the game. Cause she's offended and doesn't want to play, but her partner is Sandy, the doorman who, by the way, this is one thing that I hadn't noticed before. Sandy said that he was fired from Westing for trying to unionize the workers. But what does this mean? Cause Sandy never, right like yeah i don't want to get i don't want to get too far ahead but there are yeah it could mean many things because of the interesting nature of sandy yeah yes anyway because sandy can't get them that money you know jj's making good supreme court money she doesn't need the money she's offended by the whole thing but five thousand or ten thousand dollars would be a lot to poor sandy so jj agrees to stay because 
uh, Sandy needs her to play and to sign the check so that Sandy can have this money that would be good for him. So like, I think some of the the partner thing was also like designed like to keep JJ in the game and for a few other people to like. It ends up so not to like, we're kind of going all over the place, but at the end, cause we're not, I don't think we're going to delve very deep into the end because there <laughs> are so many, it's so intricate and there's so many twists, but um, at the end, everyone kind of takes a moment to talk about like what what they've discovered through the weeks that they are have spent playing this game and trying to solve this puzzle. And one of the partner, one of the groups says that they think that the people were partnered together with the people they needed to be partnered with. And in a lot of ways, like that is is one of the like everyone is who is able to develop as a character is able to do so because of the circumstances of the person they were put with yes except for i would say grace and james made each other worse (laughs) (laughs) i mean yes and no like yes because they they were they were not they were perhaps the least noble of the characters to begin with but also through her partnership with James, Grace starts to get into the restaurant business. And at the end of the book, like that is what has made her happy. Spoilers for the end of the book, you know, like like pursuing this, she's she's expanded and she's done all of these new things and she's like franchised it. And that that seems to have taken her out of her like kind of like I have to be a great society wife image of herself that she has at the beginning that's true yeah all she had to do was start a chain of horrible themed restaurants yes (laughs) (laughs) which i'm almost certain this book is the first time i heard about the like who's on first routine oh yeah probably me too now that you mention it because yeah i don't know where else i would have run into abin and costello by the time i was old enough to read this i'm not sure um it might have been for me it might have been in cartoons for me tv kind of raised Mm. me a lot as a kid uh so it might have been cartoons but also my dad was a big Abbott and Costello fan so like I have also seen Uh. the whole thing and that that may have predated some of the other things god here's by the way here's another quote I pulled this book is delightful so they they're paired up and then the reading of the will includes a a moment of silence to pray for your dear old uncle sam and flora bombach was the only heir to cry crow was the only one to pray by the time sadel pulaski could assume a pose of reverence the minute was up (laughs) (laughs) it's just this book is like sentence to sentence just full of like little one-liners that like knock you out and also tell you a lot about who these characters are yes yeah definitely there's i don't know like a lot of the humor just feels very like modern and relevant still i think i one of the strongest parts of the book to revisit i feel like now is just how sharp a lot of these jokes are like they if these came out in a sitcom now people would be like that's very clever so i don't know i really appreciated that yeah yeah it's just, it's very, there are, there are so many of these little asides like that peppered throughout that are just like, so they're just so funny. They're so fresh. Like Jay was saying, like it is still, they're not, they've not, there are some aspects of this book that have aged poorly, but not badly, if that makes sense. Like there's some stuff that like reading it now, it's like, ah, uh, yeah, like 
I wouldn't say it that way today. Yes. Or even, even, you know, I, I feel like, and this, this I think is also like rapidly changed over maybe the past like five or 10 years, but there is like a real kind of underscore of like, yes, like capitalism allows us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and become millionaires. And that's something we should mm. all aspire to do, which I, I feel like now <laughs> yeah. is less lauded. Uh, <laughs> There's also a little bit of like, Hooray for America stuff that it feels a little corny in retrospect too. But um yeah, some of some of the politics of this book uh don't hold up. I agree with that. But I do think, as you were saying before, like the style absolutely does. And um yeah, it I just love it so much. Yeah. I did have a horrifying thought, which was in this version of it, um, Turtle's a little scammer who sells there's a blizzard that knocks out the power and she goes door to door and sells candles and like marks up the price and then won't take refunds when the power comes back and it's just like just like a cute little scam but i do feel like a 2022 western game turtle would definitely sell nfts that's so funny one of my notes that i had was turtle was like a proto crypto person like even down to her weird obsession with the stock market and stuff i i actually like i had highlighted let me find this real quick oh there's a phrase where she's uh yeah when she's basically telling um pardon me ah sorry where she's there's a phrase where she's coaching flora on how to use the stock market and she says something like Paper losses doesn't mean a thing. I didn't pick those stocks. Mr. Westing did. And the whole thing just feels so much like something you would read on Reddit when people are like defending their poor cryptocurrency decisions. I was <laughs> I was just floored by the similarities. It's really something else. Totally. And she gets in trouble at school because she brings a transistor radio so she can listen to the stock market. Uh, that That is so funny. And also something that... I, I mean, even when I was reading it in the 90s, like definitely had to be explained of like, why are you listening to stocks on the radio? But uh, it's great. I love her. <laughs> the only good girl boss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, she's so good. This book is so good. I really also, I really like it when uh, they're, they first encounter the, um, what is it? Make, oh. There's a quote about God in gold that I forgot. And someone says, who's that by? And her response is, Shakespeare, Turtle replied. All quotations were either from the Bible or Shakespeare. Yes. Oh, yeah. May God thy gold refine. That's it. Yeah. Is the qu- yeah. Oh, um, it's very good. Um, so they they start going over these clues. And at first, like, it's they're not supposed to work together. But after a few days of, like, staring at these little scraps of paper with random words on them, they have like building meetings to try and talk about it and decide whether or not they want to work together and like more clues start slipping back and forth between different groups in various ways. And a hot topic is the fact that uh, Seidel had taken a shorthand version of the will as it was being read and copies of the will were not distributed to the heirs. So she has the only working copy of it. And suddenly everyone wants to hang out with her and be her friend. Mm-hmm. 
Which is exactly what she wants. Yes. And, like, concurrently and in ways that end up getting, like, mixed in with the mystery that is going on, they have uh there, there's a couple like under the table shady things that are going on uh there's someone in the building who's a bookie there's someone in the building who is stealing things from other building residents um and there is someone who is starting to set off bombs within the building bomb is definitely uh a a term that's used really liberally here because she's Oops, sorry, the bomber is basically mailing <laughs> packages of firecrackers to yes. other people. <laughs> so. Yes. So there, because there, there is a snowstorm not long after the will is read and everyone is snowbound, they know that whoever is doing these things is someone who is within the building as well. Um, so there's like the secrets. There are the secrets of the ways that everyone is tied to Mr. Westing because everyone is, it turns out, tied to Mr. Westing in one way or another. And that's the reason why they were chosen to be heirs. There's the secrets of who is doing these like shady things that are happening in the building. There's the mystery of what the will means and who, because quote unquote, murdered Mr. Westing. Um, and it's just like all of these mysteries going on simultaneously with all of these different plot threads that actually like all weave together at the very end. Yeah, I um I didn't even realize until you just mentioned it, the the whole snowstorm aspect, but that really makes this like a classic traditional locked room mystery in the style of like the rules that SS Van Dyne wrote. It's that's man, it, there's just level after level of this book uh that I didn't, you know, that I I pick up every time I come to it but that's a really good point yeah they they cut off or Ellen Raskin cuts off the ability for there to be anyone outside of these people involved with any of these mysteries by very clearly like putting boundaries around the edge of the building and being like nope it's one of them I'm not gonna cheat it's a really fair mystery and that makes it fun yeah so good it's so good I know I keep (laughs) saying that but it's because it's the truth so with the $10,000, we alluded to this, Turtle decides that when Westing says the point of the game is to win, surely what he means is um, to make the most money. And so she, as as we mentioned, like she gets Flora to invest their money into, she decides that the clues are different stock shares. So I don't know, one of theirs is Mountain and there's some stock whose symbol is MT. So they like invest in that. They like convert their clues into stock symbols and invest in the market, which is very funny and very good. Mm -hmm. There is another, you know, there's, I'm thinking more and more about like the ableism and like the portrayal of disability in this book, especially because the edition I read had a little introduction that was basically like Ellen Raskin had some kind of not very well understood like wasting style disease and like died very young from it yeah she died at 58 from a disease with connective tissue i was reading it i haven't been able to find more details than that but she definitely um yeah she died very young from a chronic disease yeah and like that she you know the the introduction talks about her having like bad days and good days and like being really kind of you know impacted badly by this illness that she had and Anyway, 
we learned that Flora had a daughter who had Down syndrome. They use an older term for it, but the daughter had Down syndrome. And then this daughter died of pneumonia at the age of 19. And I don't know, the way that Flora talks about the daughter is in in a way that I think might be seen to be like a little bit condescending now, like now after being like steeped in reading about the disability rights movement for like the last 20 years or whatever I've been doing. But I think at that time was more widely considered to be like, she was very like gentle and accepting of this daughter, I think for 1979. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I, you know, I I don't want to get too serious here, but I grew up with a mother who had MS. And I think one of the things that really stuck with me with this book kind of is the way Chris, Chris is handled and Flora's daughter is handled because, uh, you know, I was a child in the eighties. Things were not very gentle or understanding then. And, you know, even though it doesn't necessarily hold up to modern scrutiny, I think as someone who was around disability a lot in my early years, this was maybe one of the first times where I encountered it in a story and it wasn't used as a joke or, you know, as a reason to feel sorry for a character. And I really like that a lot. Yes. And like early on, we see Seidel Pulaski like being like sweet to Chris, but being like really condescending to him. Like he is trying to express that it's snowing, but it's hard for them to understand what he's saying. And she's like, Oh my goodness. Like, yes, you were trying to point out the itsy bitsy snowflings. And, um, the narrative is like really dismissive of that as, as, as is his brother, Theo, but it's just, I, I overall with, you know, with putting an asterisk in like, yeah, this is still 1979. And like, maybe it wouldn't all be this way i think it is a and it is a novel with a lot of like empathy for you know various disability experiences yeah there's i mean because because we're talking about a time period where i feel like a lot of and i and i say i feel like i speak from experience with like friends and family members um, where where the sol- solution, quote unquote, to having a child with Down syndrome or having a child with a disease that makes them that gives them a disability and makes them more difficult to take care of is to put them in an institution. Mm-hmm. Like even if you love them, even if you know you're not in like a cruel mustache twirling way, even. But that was just like that was what you did. Like that was that was how it was done so i think the f- the fact that these characters are treated with care and love by their family members does say a lot even if it doesn't necessarily mesh with what you know how the disability movement has evolved since then mm-hmm. yeah i i don't know i i just wanted to bring that up at this point cuz that's kind of like where i was in my notes yeah and it is so, you know, she she did lose her daughter. She, Flora. She, yeah, Flora, Flora, you know, her daughter does does die of pneumonia at age 19. And she is, as I mentioned earlier, Grace is kind of an absent parent to Turtle with all of her focus on Angela. And Turtle does, like, t- Turtle... yearns for someone to fill that maternal hole even if she won't admit it and flora ends up doing that for her and it both like gives her an outlet for you know i think dealing with some of the grief of losing her daughter and having someone new to take care of and also gives turtle the support that she really needs at this point 
Uh, and Turtle initially gets very snippy whenever Flora mentions her daughter because she's like, oh, you know, and she was just, she was so friendly. You know, she was so kind. She was, you know, so wonderful. And to Turtle's ears at first, she's hearing like, you know, it sounds like how her mother talks about Angela and ignores her that, you know, it has that kind of echo of like, and you're not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when she does see a picture of Flora and Rosalie and realizes like, oh, she had Down syndrome and everything kind of clicks in Turtle's head. And like on a dime, she turns and says like, she looks so happy. Like she must have been like so cheerful and like so great to have around and like suddenly understands Flora at a level that she hadn't previously Um, Which is what goes back to what we were saying before about how like all of these partnerships, even though they seem like kind of weird and and not what anyone is expecting when they're first read off, like it it is allowing all of these characters to get to to understand parts of themselves and parts of each other that they previously hadn't and really grow over the course Mm -hmm. of the story through these like interactions with people who they may not have chosen to spend time with otherwise. Yes. Also, one small note. I also don't think at first Turtle realized that Rosalie was dead. I think she thought Flora had like an adult daughter who just didn't live with her. And yes. I think that that was also a piece of the envy. Yes, that also. Yeah. Who? What other partners we got? I really like uh, Jake Wexler and Sunny, the the woman who doesn't speak very much <laughs> English. And there's a, there's a moment like pretty early on when like, Jake is like, oh, hello, like, how are you doing? And Angela's like, um, dad, like, she doesn't speak English. And he says, well, how will she ever learn English if no one ever talks to her? And he, um, they, like, meet for lunch in the restaurant. And they just have, like, I don't know, just kind of, like, a, a cute little friendship going. Which maybe is one of the only good things in Sunny's life. <laughs> oh. <laughs> also, I'm going to say this now. Jake's secret is that he's a bookie and he takes illegal bets. And I feel like this is something also that in fifth grade, we just did not go into the details of. And I still don't really understand, like, why is it illegal to be a bookie? And what do you do? And like, what is a bookie? (laughs) As far as I know, it's illegal to be a bookie because of like weird uh, leftover Rico laws from the 1920s and and the need to... um what do we call it? The need to clamp down on the vice business. So only authorized actors can profit from it. I don't know that there's really, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a huge like, conversation. Okay. Like, I feel like, like it should be taxed, I guess. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just like selling alcohol or whatever, I guess, in the eyes of the government. I, I think there's a huge discussion to be had about whether or not that's right. But as far as I can tell, it just comes down to doing something without a license that other people can do with a license. <laughs> Okay, so there are licensed bookies. I does it show I don't place a lot of bets. <laughs> yeah, I don't either, but I've been to Vegas and I know like yeah, casinos are licensed bookies, so Okay. So like only in a casino? Are there other are there other places you can get a bookie? <laughs> like a re- Well, you can go to like a betting facility I know um, that only takes like a sports book, they're called, and they'll only take bets and I don't think they do anything else. But I don't think an individual can like operate out of their, their home office okay. taking bets. I don't think that's how it works. I honestly, I'm, like a f- I'm talking <laughs> I'm talking like I know, but I have no fucking clue. <laughs> that sounds right to me. You can't be a freelance bookie. 
God, this is yeah. just like at, at a previous book club, I went in a real spiral and I could not let the book club move on until I had established how many remaining members of the mob there were. In- <laughs> <laughs> and well, I feel and like by the way, it's like 500. It's not that many. It was more than that. It was in the thousands, but less than we expected. Less than you expected. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, we won't get into we won't get into that. There's a whole other conversation. Uh, you don't want to have is, that that's tangent for a second time. <laughs> the thing about me is I don't know a lot about crimes because I don't watch police procedurals. No. And so every so often I'm like, wait, what is this? That was exactly what I was gonna say. Is like you clearly even as a child when I was watching this, I was already deep into my like, well, I'm seven and I'm watching 2020. So, um, so yeah, like you you learn about things like this when you watch a lot of murder shows, it turns out. Yeah. And as a young man in the 1980s, there was absolutely nothing cooler and more glamorous than the mob. So uh yeah, I was pretty plugged in as well. <laughs> I, I absolutely I'm cutting myself off from saying anything else about the mob. Kate, you must continue the plot discussion while I gather my thoughts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so some of the other um, partnerships, there was um, Chris, who was the kid with the wheelchair. Uh, he is partnered with Denton Deer, uh, the fiance of Angela. And I did. I found him to be slightly... I, I disagree with you a little bit, Renata, because I did find him to be slightly redeemed. He's better than he was. I still just think Angela could do better. Oh, absolutely. Angela could do better. I would have preferred if Angela had not gotten married at all. That's what I said. Yes, I was there because you just said it. <laughs> no, but that's what I said at the beginning. Yeah, I that's I was... what I mean. Okay. So I was just, well, I, you said you disagreed with me. I disagreed I with him getting redeemed. With not getting redeemed. You had made a comment earlier saying that you didn't feel like he got redeemed at all. That fine. Yeah, that was an overstatement. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> I, walk had, it I had said it as well. And um, yeah, he does. He does get redeemed uh, to an extent. He's not quite as self-absorbed and, and just um, completely unlikable as he initially appears. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he so he's he's partnered with Chris and he's a doctor and chris because he's afraid that if he signs over the money to dr deer denton deer whatever the hell his name is uh he'll just stop coming and stop working on this together and as long as he holds out on setting up that check it means that denton deer needs to come and visit him over the course of it like at first denton is very like are you gonna sign the check are you gonna sign the check and then like as time goes on and they sort of like interact more there comes a time when and at first Denton's like look just because I'm a doctor doesn't mean that I can like fix all of your problems for free so don't expect that and then towards Mm -hmm. the end of the book he brings he shows up at Chris's and he's like hey like pack a bag like I'm gonna bring you to the hospital and Chris is like no like I don't want another surgery and he's like no 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 it's not surgery but a doctor I know a neurologist I know thinks that there's a new medicine that might be able to help you and like he's willing to see you but he needs to evaluate you first so I'm going to take you to the hospital and da 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 and Chris is like oh and that's great like let me sign over the money to you and and Denton's like money what like okay you can do that later like get your bag like let's go like let's see what we can do here um which i did i did find to be you know the least probably like not a huge improvement 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> the least <laughs> acceptable, the lowest bar to pass. But he did pass it. Yeah, he did get a little better. And and as a result, like medicine does work. And so halfway through the book, Chris is suddenly able to communicate much more clearly with the outside world. Like the medicine has a pretty immediate effect on his speech, which is also convenient for the book. Yes. Yeah. I I also I think it's worth mentioning too that Chris like because of the way the book is is it's sort of an omniscient narrator but it always kind of sides with the person that it's talking about so you know everybody's thoughts and Chris has a very rich and well-described inner life. Like you always know what he's thinking. It's not like he's a non-entity until he starts talking. So there is kind of like right. a moment of triumph when he's when he's able to express to other characters these thoughts that he's having because he's actually got a handle on the mystery pretty well before anyone else does. So yes. I liked that a lot. Yeah, especially because as a bird watcher, he was like looking at the window and he saw someone leaving the Westing house with a limp. And that's a pretty clutch clue that he wasn't able to express for a while and then chose not to for a while. I will say, by the way, the healthcare in this book, some of this is where I'm like, is this just how it was in 1979? Like whenever there's a like a Nora Roberts book with a visiting doctor who just shows up and gives free medicine. I'm like, Oh, is this just how it used to be? But like (laughs) with, with like Chris just like going and getting free medicine. And then like later on, both Angela and Seidel end up in the hospital and they just put them in a shared room, even though like they're not family. Like, I don't know. I was just like, is this how it would be? I don't know. Why not? Well, and spoilers, I guess, we're about to this point. Why Seidel and Angela both end up in the hospital is uh, due to bombs going off. Seidel gets hit when they're having um, a meeting in the Chinese restaurant. and But this is a part where she's actually bonding with Chris and making some, like, kind of gross jokes about Chinese food in a way that is, like, again, you wouldn't want to do that today, but... And the counterpoint is like, oh, she is actually like trying to communicate with Chris and they're like having a good time. So she's not ableist, but they're both maybe a little bit anti-Asian in a not cool way. But then she gets hit in the face with a bomb. So that'll that'll teach her. (laughs) (laughs) And by bomb, bottle rockets. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. At that point in the book, too, I don't even really know if the bombs have been fully described as fireworks yet. So there's an awesome scene where the bomb goes off in the kitchen and it describes as the door opening and a shower of sparks coming out. And I remember reading that and being like, what kind of bomb is a shower of sparks? But once <laughs> you realize that they're basically setting off the fireworks you buy at Walgreens, it makes a lot more sense. Yes. And somehow, by the way, I also have some notes for this bomb squad in town because I think they just didn't even look because they're like, oh, it was just like a gas leak in this restaurant kitchen and it made a can of tomato sauce explode. But there must have been like firework pieces in it. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So that happens. And then slightly later um, at Angela's bridal shower, um, she's opening her gifts and a a bomb goes off in one of her gifts and wounds her in the face. And notably at that time, turtle is there and turtle's annoyed because Angela is like being so slow about unwrapping the gift. And so turtle like leans in to help unwrap it. And Angela like crucially tilts the gift away from turtle and points it towards her own face. So she gets hit turtles fine. 
But that also makes Turtle realize that, oh, Angela knew it was a bomb because Angela is the one setting off these bombs, which is uh, great. I just realized how clever that is, too, because the reason she was taking a long time to open the present is because the bombs used turtle striped candles that you talked about earlier as a wick. So she had basically uh, she knew she ahead knew. of time what when that bomb was going to go off. Yeah. So she was opening it to coincide with when the, the fuse was going to be lit. And oh, wow. see, uh, It's so good. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's so clever. What I hadn't really pieced together earlier is like they know that the stripy candle was used but everybody in the building has those stripy candles because turtle went and sold them door to door when there was blizzard so everybody in apartment has a stripy candle yeah. ah, it's it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant mystery writing i just like <laughs> i feel like people talk about agatha christie and the ss van dyne and you know dorothy parker and all these kind of people but i sorry sayers but i feel like you know, Ellen Raskin deserves a mention because this book is so well plotted for a mystery. Like you could so make true. a killer movie out of this. But yeah. Anyway, <laughs> has there ever been a movie? I feel like the, I feel like last time I feel like for book club we talked about this, and maybe there had, but it was just sort of underwhelming, which is a shame. I don't know about a movie, but there the rights were just sold for a TV show a couple of years ago. For HBO Max, but I don't think Ooh. anything has come of it yet. Oh, oh, there was a movie in 1997, and I'm gonna have to watch that later because now I'm curious. If they did a cartoon of this, I totally think that um, Turtle, her voice should be Kristen Shaw um, because that's the voice <laughs> I heard in my head every time she had dialogue. <laughs> oh, that would be great. Oh, the Westing Game movie was also called Get a Clue, which I did hear. Uh, about. Anyway. I don't. I, I think it probably wasn't that good, because if it were, we'd have seen it. Let's move on. Good point. <laughs> oh, at this point, somewhere in here, like, Judge Ford is doing, like, actual investigation. She's hired a private investigator, and she's, like, calling the library and using her judge powers to get people to do stuff for her, which is great. And here's where we learn, like, some of the dark backstory of the Westing family, where... There is a, a Mrs. Westing who's sort of mysterious and they don't know a lot about her. And they had a daughter named Violet who died by suicide because her Mrs. Westing was really pushing her to marry a senator. But she, Violet Westing really wanted to marry George Theodorakis, who is and you know didn't marry Violet, obviously, and instead married another woman and now is the father of um, Chris and Theo, who live in those this building and that's their connection to everything so yeah this this is dark the whole violet westing situation yeah and the research that judge ford is doing also starts to unveil the different connections that everyone had to the westings i don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole we're, we're approaching the point where i'm like do we want to like just go a whole hog and talk about the whole thing or are we yeah, I think, I mean, we, I think, are there any other, like, delicious details that anyone else simply must discuss before we get to, like, the end game? I don't know if it fits here or at the end game, but I, I think one of the things that really stood out to me about this book is the fact that, like, it has a huge MacGuffin in place, which is those clues that they get. And um, everyone's trying to figure out what the clues are, and it turns out that they're lyrics from God Bless America with certain things missing. 
But what I found really, really interesting and fun to read about this book is that like the whole time that as the reader, I was wondering what these words would mean. And then it got to a point where it was so obvious to me. And I'm like, how come they haven't figured it out? There's also all these little clues being dropped that have nothing to do with that, but have everything to do with the real central mystery of the book. So it kind of like sends you on a on a wild goose chase around these clues, just like the characters. And if you were actually paying attention when you were thinking about them, you'd be like, maybe more able to figure out what was really at work when it comes to the characters relations to each other and stuff. I thought that was really well done. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. Because even when, yeah. So it, well, actually it's not God bless America. It's the sign that's just called America. And it's like the, the purple mountains, <laughs> majesty and Amber right. Grand Talk. Yeah. America, the beautiful, in- that's it. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm just embodying the internet response to that. Anyway, <laughs> they 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 agree to combine their clues and they and part of the will was like it's not it's what you don't have that's important. And they put it together and they realize it is like the words from the song but missing a few syllables. And the syllables that they're missing spell out Bertha Erica Crow. So like you know somebody has an am where it should be America and they realize like oh Erica's missing so they're like oh it's birth Erica Crow and oh okay so they realize like Crow and I think at this point JJ Ford already knows this but has decided not to say and I guess we should say JJ Ford's connection to all this is that her parents were like servants to the Westings family and so JJ like grew up in that household and would play chess with Mr. Westing. And he was like really condescending to her. And she like, hate like he would always beat her at chess and he would always be sort of like snippy to her. And then he paid for her to go to law school. And she felt like she hated feeling like she was in debt to him basically. And another, another interesting thing that I think is worth mentioning of how, people are connected to Westing is that Westing changed. So Grace refers to herself as Grace Windsor Wexler. Mm. And it comes out as JJ Ford is investigating that Grace's maiden name actual Yeah, her actual maiden name is Windclopple. Not Windsor. And Judge Ford discovers that Windclopple was also Sam Westing's name, well, his last name, Winkloppel, was the name that Westing had when he first moved to America, and he changed it when he started to become a paper goods mogul. And because the whole time, as soon as she finds out that she could be an heir to the Westing fortune, she keeps being like, oh, yeah, like, I do kind of remember my my parents talking about my Uncle Sam, and it's probably him, like, of course, like, ah, yes, like, old Uncle Sam Westing, like, 100%, I'm an heir of his because I'm related to him, and in the end, it turns out that he actually was her Uncle Sam. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she spends the whole book, like, putting on this, this uh, kind of... Uh, air that she's an heiress wow that worked uh Mm -hmm. and then it turns out it was actually true but she didn't know it and was lying anyway okay so the the clues spell out bertha erica crow and while they've gotten together to like share their answers and to like turn this in uh sandy mcsuthers the doorman dies 
and oh and there's this there's this lawyer who is incompetent but he's the one who's like calling them together and reading the will and he's like following the instructions to the letter and he has called for the sheriff to come like halfway through the meeting and timed it so that the sheriff comes like right when sandy is like you know to pronounce sandy dead and um and they're like oh should we should we turn in crow and everyone decides not to but then crow reveals herself and like calmly like goes off and says that she wants to give half of her um so like she's solved the will the the answer to the will is her which means she gets all of westing's millions but she's being arrested for murder so she wants half of her winnings to go to the soup kitchen that she runs and half of them to go to otis amber no to go to angela oh you're right Yes. Because Angela looks just like Violet Westing, the daughter who died by suicide. Yes. Um, yes. And we find out eventually there's a reason for that. It is because they are, in fact, related. Yes. But she's been in her, like, weird religious fervor. She's been obsessed with Angela the whole time and keeps calling her an angel because she sees her as her deceased daughter. Yes. And and because her name's Angela, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> layers, he, there's layers. It's so good. Yes, fucking. But luckily, Crow does not have to go to jail because they determine that Sandy died of a heart attack and it wasn't murder, and that like like the okay like the will said like I you know I Sam Westing was killed, but the the police aren't really interested in that because he's like already been involved and they're like, it wasn't, they're just like, it wasn't um, for reasons that I, I guess I already said it wasn't a murder. So because can we say, yeah, let's, yeah, go for let's it. Say, let's say uh, Sam Westing wasn't fucking dead. He's been there the whole time. And Oh God. And another thing that is seeded throughout is this idea that, Sam Westing loved to dress up and like for the 4th of July party, he would dress in elaborate costumes, including like one year as Betsy Ross and then Sandy McSuthers. There's, there's something about Sandy. And then God, we haven't even really talked about Barney Northrup cause he is annoying, but Barney Northrup like gives, Oh, Sandy gives advice to turtle about what dentist she should go to. And the dentist there is like, Oh, I specialize in um, these dentures and they look so realistic because they're not perfect. And that's how you, you know, that's how you can get away with something fake if it's not perfect. And they're all fucking Sam Westing. Yeah. So in the will, there was a, there was a reference to now my brain is totally fucked out the four, four. <laughs> this is really hard to talk about and explain because it's so tightly knotted. And yeah, the ending of this book is like 18 different threads coming together. It's really difficult to explain. And uh, I think you're both doing a terrific job. <laughs> Th- thank you. And and feel free to jump in anytime. But OK, so the thing about the will is that it's it's in sections and it's like third. Here are my errors. Da, 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 da. And um, the winner should be the one that finds the fourth. And then it seems like it's the fourth section of the will. And, you know, and they think that it's just an imperfect transcript because it's been translated back from um, Seidel's shorthand. But in fact, what the will was supposed to say, it was like the winner is the one who finds the fourth. Yeah. And it says so it says the estate is at the crossroads. The heir who wins the windfall will be the one who finds the and then Sandy shouts ashes 
uh, right. you know, ashes scattered to the winds. So, and then it goes to the, yeah, the one who finds the fourth. And the thing that he keeps repeating in the will is that the the game isn't about what you have. It's about what's missing. So Turtle puts together that, Sam, that you know, there was Sam Westing. There was Sandy. Oh, Go on. Yeah. Oh, I was just saying I love this so much. This is the part that still gives me goosebumps every time I read it because it's so obvious, but I didn't realize it until the narrator explains it. It's so good. So there's there's Sam Westing, there's Sandy Southers, there's Barry Northrup, who is the person who got them all their apartments. And then we see like sort of in a couple newspaper clippings and other places that the gentleman who is the chair of the board now that Westing is dead is a gentleman named Eastman. Julian Eastman. Ah! And Turtle puts it together that like Westing's not dead. This is a game. And that Eastman is the missing fourth. And after, you know, this whole elaborate thing, she keeps it to herself uh, and then shows up the next day at the Eastman mansion to say, like, hello, Sandy, which is the part that, like, got me the first time I read it and gets me every single time. Yes. There's there's ah. also, too, just one of the my favorite little subtle parts is the thing that makes it click for her goes back to, like, this running gag throughout that she kicks everyone's shins. And there's a part where she kicks Sandy's shin and then later on realizes that... um. Uh, who was it? Oh, Northrop. It was Northrop's shin she kicked. And when the police come to examine Sandy, they find that he has a bruised shin. And that's when it clicks in her head. It's like, oh, I didn't kick Sandy. I never kicked Sandy. I kicked Barney Northrop. And yeah, it's just like, it's such a payoff for like a gag that's running throughout it to, yes. to make that part of the mystery. I loved it. It's so good. And it also adds to the suspicion of um, Chris has been looking out for someone with a limp, but like almost everyone has a limp because Turtle kicks them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so it's so good. It's very rare that somebody makes a comedic mystery that works on both levels. And I think that's why I just continue to admire this book outside of the context of just being a good kid's book. It's like it's a rare accomplishment in either genre to get them both right at the same time and to make the comedy an integral part of the mystery. It's just it's mind blowing when I think about it. Like I just yeah, I keep going back to what a triumph this is for genre fiction. And it's it's crazy that this is something that, you know, most people only encounter in an elementary school library. Chef's kiss. So good. Yeah, so, so Turtle figures it out and figures out that, you know, this is, this is what's actually going on. Crow is released. Turtle starts visiting Westing, a.k.a. Sandy, a.k.a. Barney Northrop, a.k.a. Julian Eastman, every week to start learning how to play chess. Yeah. Because uh, there's also this whole thing, too, this whole thing running throughout where when Judge Ford was younger, she would play chess with Westing. And the one time she thought she beat him, she took his queen, but really he was just setting her up. And yes. a, a queen's sacrifice. Yeah. And realizes that a, when the person who, uh, throughout the, the, the book, 
Theo, whenever he's around the chessboard in the Westing house, has noticed a game has started. So he's playing against someone and it turns out that it's Sandy. And the last right before Sandy, quote unquote, dies, Theo takes his queen and tells Judge Ford as much. And she realizes that, like, that's when she starts to put it together. And also by getting by putting the attention on Crow and having her taken out by the police at the last minute when, like, they think they've solved the crime, but they really haven't is yet another queen's sacrifice that he has done in this game yes oh and because judge ford had always felt angry about feeling in debt to westing because he paid for her law school which by the way only cost ten thousand dollars in that economy. i know right it's <laughs> mind-blowing but because judge ford generously signed over uh, they got another like ten thousand dollar check to split or no they didn't no it was just because she didn't she gave him the whole thing. Yes. She because she gave him the whole check um that th- like she opens an envelope and gets like a receipt saying like that uh like doing the math and showing that the the law school education has now been paid off because she gave $10,000 to Sandy aka Westing. Fuck. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, and there's there's a little bit, there's a, a couple of little epilogues. You know, several months later, we check in on the ca- characters again, and that's where we find out Turtle's visiting Westing and learning chess. Angela has put off her wedding and given back her engagement ring, and she's going back to college, which we had previously learned she went to college for one year and she did really well, but her mother wanted her to get married and save the money because once she got married she wouldn't need to like go to medical school and become a doctor anyway so and because the family didn't actually have that much money yes crow and otis amber who've like fallen in love over the course of many years are getting married grace has taken over the who's restaurant and instead the two of them are working on selling these paper insoles that oh yeah oh yeah we didn't even talk about how james who is an inventor and feels that westing stole his um invention of a a certain paper diaper and like that's how he's connected to westing and westing as sandy gives him the idea to instead make paper insoles which he does and they're incredibly (gasps) comfortable (gasps) i didn't even realize that part fuck ah it's there's so many little (laughs) things i love it Yeah, and it's great. And then there's another flash forward to five years later and everyone's really happy. And then at the end, we get another flash forward as Westing is finally actually dying and Turtle fills him in on how everyone from the old apartment building is doing. And she's like super successful, a super successful businesswoman. And she's married to Theo and... Like she plays chess with Al- uh, Angela's daughter Alice, and she Flora moves in with her once. Like she starts making money as like, oh, it's just so good. It's so good. Yeah, I didn't even notice that Angela named her daughter Alice, which is what Turtle told Flora her name was, even though it isn't. Oh gosh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Mm. 
Yeah, it's so good. Uh, can we move on to our dramatic readings and just let you all hear how good this book is? If you don't already know, which again, you should know. You should have read it if you're listening. <laughs> and I think um, Jay is first up with a dramatic reading right from the very first chapter. Okay, well, one thing I noticed immediately reading this, and I know it's because my brain is now poisoned, but I was noticing that uh, Barney Northrup, who has quite a few lines in the beginning, as well as... Uh, has a letter that's delivered that we mentioned earlier. His his cadence and his choice of words are very familiar. And um, he's this, the character that, that Westing is playing at this point is this very kind of um, desperate real estate salesman who uses a lot of flowery language to describe his properties. And I was like, why does this voice sound familiar? And I realized it's because I had just suffered through four years of this man being president. So I'm going to do a bit of a character voice for Barney Northrup and you have to bear with me, but I have to get this out of my system, but to set it up, here we go. Then one day it happened to be the 4th of July, a most uncommon looking delivery boy rode around on town, ta- rode around town, slipping letters under the doors of chosen tenants to be the letters were signed Barney Northrup. The delivery boy was 62 years old and there was no such person as Barney Northrup. And this is the letter. <clears throat> Dear lucky one. Here it is, the apartment you've always dreamed of, at a rent you can afford, in the newest, most luxurious building on Lake Michigan. Sunset towers, picture windows in every room, uniform doorman, maid service, central air conditioning, high-speed elevator, exclusive neighborhood, near excellent schools, etc., etc. You have to see it to believe it. But these unbelievably elegant apartments will be shown by appointment only. So hurry, there are only a few left. Call me now at 276-7474 for this once-in-a-lifetime offer. Your servant, Barney Northrup. And then um, the the chapter here closes with, with a list of the residents and then just a really, really catchy closing paragraph. So I wanted to read that as well. There's the list of Dr. Wessler, The Coffee Shop, F. Bombach, Theodorakis, S. Pulaski, Wexler, who, J.J. Ford, Shin Hu's restaurant. Who were these people, these specially selected tenants? They were mothers and fathers and children, a dressmaker, a secretary, an inventor, a doctor, a judge. And, oh yes, one was a bookie, one was a burglar, one was a bomber, and one was a mistake. Barney Northrop had rented one of the apartments to the wrong person. It's uh, it's just I don't know. There the style of this book is so perfect for the book that it is and I love it. Yes, and I think that I by the way, I apologize we normally will not have any um Trump content on this podcast, but I think that that is <laughs> so appropriate because um just like like all of those are not true. Like this is not yeah. a good apartment building. <laughs> and and like throughout the book they disprove all of those things yeah and i don't know like i could not get it out of my head like from the like the first sentence that that guy says i was just like oh i i heard it in that voice that awful like nasal voice it's just really difficult for me to shake uh so i was really glad that he kind of steps out of the book early as a character yeah because because there's no such person as barney northam they tell you right away and yet (sighs) Also, by the way, I don't think we ever mentioned the the mistake, which is um, Cybell Pulaski. They were supposed to invite a person named Sybil Pulaski, and they messed up the name. It's not that important. Okay, I'm going to do a, another dramatic reading from Angela's Bridal Shower. 
The gossiping guests were sipping jasmine tea from Westing paper party cups, nibbling on tidbits from Westing paper party plates, and wiping their fingers on Westing paper party napkins. Madame Who served in a tight-fitting silk gown slit high up her thigh, a costume as old-fashioned and impractical as bound feet. Women in China wore blouses and pants and jackets. That's what she would wear when she got home. Grace clapped her hands for attention. Girls, girls, it's time for the bride-to-be to open her presents. Angela, you sit here and everybody gather round. Angela did as her mother said. She lowered herself to a cushion on the floor, ringed by gift boxes and surrounded by vaguely familiar faces. She had not invited her few friends from college. They were bent on careers. This wasn't their thing. These were her mother's friends and the newly married daughters of her mother's friends. And Turtle, who was leaning against the wall, arms folded, smirking. Lucky Turtle, the neglected child. Read it out loud, dear, Grace ordered as Angela opened the card tied to the yellow ribboned box. To the bride-to-be in the kitchen stuck, an asparagus cooker and lots of luck, from Cookie Barf Springer. Thank you, Angela said, wondering which one was the Barf Springer. (laughs) The next gift was an egg poacher. The box in pink ribbons contained another asparagus cooker. I sure hope Dr. Deer likes asparagus, someone remarked. The giver said she could return it for something else, although two might come in handy. A doctor's wife has so much entertaining to do. Angela glanced at her watch and reached for the tall, thin carton wrapped in gold foil. Look how Angela's hands are shaking. She's as nervous as a groom. Giggles. Bride-to-be jitters. More giggles. Slowly, Angela unknotted the gold ribbon. Carefully, she unfolded the gold foil. How neatly she did everything. The perfect child, not like Turtle, who ripped off wrappings, impatient to see what was inside. Hurry up, Angela, you're such a poke, Turtle complained. Suddenly, there she was, kneeling down to peek under the lid. Get away, Angela cried, jerking the gift up and away from her sister as the lid blasted off with a shattering bang. Bang, bang, a rapid red attack, rockets shooting, fireballs bursting, comets shrieking, sparks sizzling, two dozen framed flower prints falling off the wall. (laughs) Then it was over. (laughs) Oh my god, so good. Also, I side note, I was like, wait, is an asparagus cooker real? It is real. <laughs> I I looked it up too, and I actually want one because I, I do love asparagus. And I was like, holy crap, this would solve all my problems. It's a very <laughs> tall pot. It's a tall pot for asparagus. I always roast my asparagus. Lay it flat. No need for a cooker. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the steamed asparagus because uh, oh, okay. I don't know, I'm I'm have poor taste, I guess, but it... <laughs> I want an asparagus cooker now. But the only companies that appear to still make them are like these Williams-Sonoma boutique kitchen supplies, and I'm not going to pay $100 for an asparagus cooker. So (laughs) if anyone has a line on an affordable one, uh, my email will be at the end of the show. (laughs) It it feels like a good garage sale item for sure. Now, Now that you know what you're looking for. Yeah, that's true, because I think probably most of the asparagus cookers that were sold probably happened in the late 70s, early 80s, so it's a good time to pick them up at an estate sale or something. (laughs) I'm going to do our last dramatic reading, which is from the end of the book, Turtle's Trial, as she is figuring out uh, how to solve Sam Westing's mystery. 
Turtle looked up from the will. Crow's birthday? Sandy had brought a striped candle for his wife's birthday, a three-hour candle. The game is still on. Sam Westing came back to seek his heir. You can still win. I hope you do, he said. How? How? It is not what you have. It's what you don't have that counts. Whatever it was she didn't have, she'd have to find it soon. Without letting the others know what she was looking for. Judge Ford, I'd like to call my first witness. Who was furious? Haven't we had enough game playing, he complained, and led by a confessed bomber, no less. Judge Ford rapped for silence with the walnut gavel presented to her by associates on her appointment to a higher court. Higher court? This was the lowest court she had ever presided at. A 13-year-old lawyer, a court stenographer who records in Polish, and the judge in African robes. Oh, well. She had played Sam Westing's game. Now she would play Turtle's game. The similarity was astounding. Turtle not only looked like her Uncle Sam, she acted like him. Ladies and gentlemen, Turtle began, I stand before this court to prove that Samuel W. Westing is dead and that Sandy McSuthers is dead, but Crow didn't do it. Pacing the floor, hands behind her back, she confronted each of the heirs in turn with a hard stare. The heirs stared back, not knowing if they were the jury or the accused. Grace Wexler blinked up at her daughter. Who's that? The district attorney, Jake replied. Go back to sleep. Um, so yeah, I could keep going, but I'm going to stop because <laughs> I could literally read this whole chapter. It's so good. Uh, but I, I should mention too that Grace and Jake before this. And so, so Turtle, Angela was the bomber. Turtle confessed to the bombing, which we didn't mention, in order to protect Angela, uh, with the knowledge that she as a child would get a lesser sentence than Angela as an adult. And prior to this, after learning that Turtle was the bomber, Grace and Jake went out and had a couple glasses of wine and then kept drinking. And so Grace shows up to this final will reading, totally like jolly and happy and drunk off her gills. It's it's very funny. It's so good. God. Yes. Okay. Should we move on to Reader's Advisory? Yes. Let us do that. First of all, impossible. This book is peerless. Yes. There is no need to read something instead of this book. You should just read this book. If you've already read this book, though, here are some other books that you might like. Yeah. I also have one anti-recommendation, which is The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes, which made me so mad because it, like, it wants what this book has, but it is, like, 2% as good. And yet, somehow it's really popular in Book Talk. Why? Because Book Talk is unknowable. I hate, I'm so mad about it. I'm just mentioning Inheritance Games because of my, um, just to air my grudge. I'm not even going to put it on the website. <laughs> okay. Don't read it. Fuck it. I, <laughs> I'll i mention some books you should actually read. A couple other middle grades. Uh, when You Reach Me by Rebecca Steed, which has a similar level of uh, like twisty mystery where all of the strands of what seem to be different plot points end up weaving together in the end. Uh, it is a great book and I love it. Um, and then the Mysterious Benedict Society books by Trenton Lee Stewart feel very in this vein, 
they they feel spiritually very close to the West End game to me, at least. You know, also, I didn't think of this until just now when we are doing our dramatic readings. I also think Lemony Snicket owes something to the Weston game. Mm. And I'm not saying I'm not saying he's doing it at her level because, again, no one is. And I also know Lemony Snicket has like dipped his toe in some problematic waters. But I overall like those books. And I think they're they're an okay read alike for this overall. Yeah. Jay, what do you got? Um, I just, yeah, I really liked also uh, Ellen Raskin wrote another book called The Tattooed Potato and Other Clues that <laughs> is obviously very similar to this. And uh, the mystery is not quite as good, but the the humor is there. And um, I actually reread that as well last night and it, I still enjoyed it. So I would suggest that as well. You know, what's so funny is as much as I love this book, I've never read any of Ellen Raskin's other books and I don't know why not and that uh, that seems like a good summer goal for me sounds good i also think the movie knives out owes something to this Mm. (laughs) it absolutely does and i was kind of bummed when i saw that on the reader's advisory ahead of time because i was ready to go off throughout this entire show about how similar they are and i don't know if ryan johnson is a fan of this book but i'd be really surprised if he isn't because there are some things in knives out that are just so similar to not even just the the story beats but the tone is very very similar and i would say earlier when i was alluding to how it's very hard to do comedy and mystery at the same time and get them both right i think knives out is one of the other examples in that really sparsely populated realm so whether or not it's intentional there's a lot of similarities there and if you like that you will like this and vice versa yeah the only thing is that knives out does have an actual murder in it which i don't care for (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that guy I, is I like, actually I mean, dead <laughs> even right down to the fact that they're both movies about grumpy ass millionaires that end up being way more benevolent than you think they are i i don't know yeah yeah i'd be really surprised if this wasn't something that ryan johnson was thinking about when he wrote knives out yeah all right, well, we'll have these and some other ones up on our website, worstbestsellers.com. And now we will move on to the Rock, Paper, Snicked, which is, of course, the game where Kate says du- says who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book. And I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book. And Jay can choose which <laughs> most enhances the book or can choose paper, which is to leave it as is. Uh, so if Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, he would honestly just like be playing the sheriff who shows up for two scenes, uh, largely because I I would love to see The Rock in this book, but I would not like to change this book. <laughs> uh, yeah, similarly, if Wolverine were in this book, he would uh, place bets on hockey games with Jake Wexler and would in no way interfere with the plot of this perfect novel. I'm going to need to just tap out and say paper because as much as I love both Wolverine and the rock, I just really, I can't think of any way to improve this. So yeah, paper. Absolutely. 100% fair. That was very (laughs) rarely is there a correct answer in rock, paper, snicked, but I believe that was the correct answer. Thank you. I won. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You are me in fifth grade getting a gold star in your paper and just like, (laughs) Letting it, letting letting yourself relax for one moment. <laughs> um, let's move on to candy pairing, and uh, which is of course where we suggest a candy to go along with this book. 
much the way someone at a a fine restaurant like who's on first would suggest to a a, a wine fuck <laughs> i haven't been drinking any wine i was just trying to set up the concept that a candy pairing is like a wine pairing but you fucking get it we do <laughs> Mine would be Pop Rocks because I enjoyed those very much at the same age I enjoyed this book. And also as a as a fun tie-in to the fireworks in the book. Ooh. Mine is not necessarily a candy, but it is the cookies that I used to make as a kid that are referred i've heard other people refer to as kitchen sink cookies which is where you make (laughs) like a general base of like a chocolate chip cookie and you just put in whatever mixins you happen to have and it always feels like all those things aren't gonna mix together and get like a really good end product but they always do and i still enjoy cookies made that way now much like i did as a kid and that feels like a good a good pair for this so I'm really glad that I didn't have to break the seal on the not actually candy, but I'm going to take it even, even further. Um, I just have strong sense memory in general. I feel like in this book, I can't read it without tasting what I was eating when I finished the book was my mom and I, if you want to experience this, unfortunately, I think you're going to have to get a time machine back to like 1986 or 1987 because mm-hmm. my pairing for this is a Hard Shell Taco from Taco City in Cocoa Beach, Florida, uh, which I don't think has existed for many years. But simply because, you know, how all food tastes the best in your memory. I couldn't read this without just thinking of the most delicious taco I've ever had. And um, yeah, now I'm going to need to eat a taco after we're done recording. So (laughs) That seems like an achievable goal. It is, but it's not going to be as good. Those tacos were really something else. Also, I was like eight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, that seems like a pretty good uh, life moral. Do you have another moral of the story? I do. And my moral of the story is buy Westing paper products. (laughs) (laughs) You know, pre-pandemic, that could have been really good um, investment advice. (laughs) True. I I have one. Uh, I think my moral to the story is is that the plucky kid always solves the mystery. Um, so if you're betting on you know someone, bet on the plucky kid. Only through a licensed bookie, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you gotta be careful uh, about that. Uh, my moral of the story is, of course, that the best murder mysteries are the ones where no one actually dies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now it's time for Duarte's Corner, where my cat Duarte shares his opinions about the book. Oh, you know, Duarte, that is a good point that uh, Barney Northrup didn't mention if this was a pet-friendly building. Nobody has pets. I I think (laughs) a cat could have been a really good um, addition to the cast, and that's a good point. Yeah, you know, I I can see how, you know, there's not much I would change about this book. But, you know, I think I think that adding a cat character would have enhanced it. You're right. Even, you know, um, I know we've like both of our podcasts have read like books, cozy mysteries where animals solve mysteries. I think Ellen Raskin could have written a banger cat mystery. 
Yeah, I'm. I, I it's really unfortunate it can never happen now. But I would be so stoked to see a Lillian Jackson Braun Ellen Raskin crossover. Yeah. All right. Well, Duarte, thanks. Thanks as ever for your opinions. Uh, do any humans have any closing thoughts? Uh, this book slaps. This looks so fucking good. <laughs> yeah, I'm just. I just have to third it and say probably for the eighty third time this afternoon. <laughs> I love this book, and I feel like everybody should read this. I don't care if you're, you know, think you're way too old for it. You're gonna have a good time. It's so good. Yeah, like remember earlier when we said nothing is from your childhood is as good as you remember. There's like a, a corollary, except for the Weston game. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than you remember. Yeah, I don't know. I've been I've been really focusing a lot of my life lately on trying to put good things out into the world, and I feel like this is really the epitome of that. Because if I've accomplished one thing this year, I can be like, I took part in an effort to get more people to read the Westing game because it's going to make so many people happy, and that's rad. Yeah. Ah, uh, what a, what a delightful sentiment. If you want to come and talk to us about whether or not you've read the Westing game, if it enhanced your life, which it definitely will. Um, you can find uh, Worst Bestsellers as a podcast on social media at Worst Bestsellers, spelled normally, on Facebook and Instagram. And then we're on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S because uh, we we cut the S off to use as a clue and part of it, an elaborate uh, game that <laughs> <laughs> that you're all invited to. Check your mailboxes. <laughs> Uh, we also have a Goodreads group that you can get to by going to our website, wheresbestsellers.com. You can find us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Am- Amazon, Spotify, all of the places where you get podcasts. And if you do find us, please take a moment to rate and review. When you rate and review, it moves us up on the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. If you don't rate and review, we will be forced to kick you in the shins. Ow. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers. Patreon is a service where you pledge a small monthly recurring donation that goes to us to do things like pay for our website hosting uh, and commission art for our logo. Well, we did that already with your generous Patreon dollars, but also art for new merch, which is something we're maybe talking about this summer. Uh, And speaking of merch, uh, we do have merch available by going to worstbestsellers.com. And uh, investigating our merch store where you can find designs from our podcast to wear on your body. And finally, we do have a Discord for folks who are fans of the show who want to interact with other fans of the show. No elaborate mystery solving required. That link is also on worstbestsellers.com. We're giving you all the clues. (laughs) If you just want to talk to me personally, I'm at Renata Snacks. And if you want to see me personally, I am at 14 across, though not on Twitter much these days. And Jay, where are you? Uh, well, you can find the podcast at I don't even own a television.com or also on Twitter at IDEOTV pod. We don't post there that much either, although you will see some occasional photos of my cats who unfortunately don't solve mysteries. And uh, also the podcast is <laughs> that, on all those wonderful services that, that were about. mentioned previously. That's true. Actually, you're right. Who knows what they're up to? I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure they're mostly just good at knocking stuff down, but you never know. <laughs> they're solving mysteries and they are not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you uh, 
so much for coming, Jay. We deeply appreciate it. We love hanging out with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. And yeah, it was just it was awesome to have an excuse to read this again and to talk about it with you. It was wonderful. Yeah. Banger pick. Absolutely. We'll be back in two weeks with a collisions pick, The Door into Fire by Diane Duane, which I haven't read before. I don't know. It's got a lot to live up to, frankly, and I'm not sure it's going to make it, but you can tune into two weeks to find out if Door into Fire is as good as the Westing game. Even if it's not, I'm sure we'll have a good time. Yes. Um, and also, I, I know we are. there's a huge crossover audience between our two podcasts, but if you're one of the few that's listening to us and not to I Don't Even Own a Television, like, get on it. Yeah. Uh, all right, this has gone really long, so I guess we'll... Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us, Jay, and bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Um, my family is betting on how much my grandmother's house is going to sell for. And um, do they have a licensed bookie? <laughs> <laughs>